Very similar. They, these guys proudly boasted of being God's chosen, yet they routinely rejected God's rule in their everyday walking around life. I'm Terry Knight, the pastor here at New Life Community Church. Thank you so much for turning us on, tuning us in. I trust, as always, that the Lord's going to bless you all over the place as we celebrate again the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is Easter weekend. What a great time to uh, celebrate once again that resurrection time. We do this year around. Well, most folks do. Uh, well, I should say a, a good number of us church folks do. I trust all of you are expecting to do such this coming weekend. We're going to talk to you uh, on this particular teaching about a changed life. A changed life. What do you know about a changed life? Our text passage is taken from John chapter 8. I'm going to read just a couple of verses in your hearing, and we're going to jump right on into this. This is a story that is actually misunderstood and misquoted so, so many times. And it isn't necessary for us to do that. So hopefully we're going to straighten this out, help us to understand exactly what's going on here. Again, turn with me in your Bibles if you have one handy to John chapter 8. If you don't have one handy, it will appear right there on the screen. You just look right there and see if I'm not telling you the truth. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, the record puts it this way. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Can you imagine what a tremendous time that was to sit down with the teacher? We read about it in the Word of God, the Bible, but to be able to sit right there with Jesus and to hear him teach, what a glorious time that must have been. Well, what did he teach and what happened in the process? That's what we're going to find out as we take a look at a changed life. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for each one that has turned on this telecast, whether they've turned on live or sometime later on. I pray in Jesus' name, by your word, you would speak to hearts and we'll be careful to thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey, you listen real careful if you would, and I'm going to be back here in just a little while to wrap things up. God bless. Now watch this. Some versions, perhaps some of the versions that you're looking at or, or whatever the case might be, uh, some of them footnote that the earliest, many of the earliest manuscripts, the original manuscripts from which our English versions derive, that they did not contain these verses. And perhaps you're looking at that. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, and I'm not here to formulate some theological treatise this morning and convince you all that it does or does not belong there. It's there. I do want to say this. I find nothing here in these verses that would disqualify the account in terms 
of, watch this, in terms of comparison with the rest of the Word of God. In other words, I do not read anything here. It leaves me scratching my head like, man, where did that come from? That doesn't sound like anything else I have ever read. In fact, everybody say in fact. In fact, there are two accounts in John's gospel that present a very similar storyline. Our text passage, chapter 8, and then also if you back up a couple of chapters to John chapter 4, uh, which is the record of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the site of Jacob's well. I'm not going back there right now, suffice it to say. A lot of the details overlap. And when you read these two stories side by side, parallel, you're like, hmm, there are a lot of similarities. But they're two completely separate incidences. One of the glaring truths, and it's very important for you to understand this, one of the glaring truths about both accounts, whether it's John 4 or John 8 or any other account, is the fact that, and this is number one on your study notes, and I trust this would not only come off of your pen this morning, but that it would penetrate your hearts. Beloved, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those that are lost. What do you mean lost, Pastor? Is this somebody that doesn't have Google Maps or Waze? They got tangled up somewhere on the outskirts of Ridgeway and couldn't get here this morning? No, when I'm talking about the lost, I'm talking about unrighteous sinners. Let me see your eyeballs just a moment. That's how you come into this world. There are some people that will try to convince you different of, of, than that, but that is the truth. You come into this world, read Romans 5, 6, 7, chapter 5 in particular. You'll discover we come into this world with a sin problem. Jesus was sent to seek out those with such sin problem and to save those who are lost, that is, who are unrighteous sinners. And not only that, but to transform such ones and renew the lives of such ones that have been ravaged by a lifestyle of sin. Here's one of the little-known facts about sin. We don't talk about it too much. In fact, those outside the church quite often uh, approach sin as though that church is just a bunch of fuddy-duds, and they don't want us to have any fun, when just uh, the opposite is true. We want you to have eternal fun. We want you to have eternal peace. We want you to have eternal life. And if you know anything at all about sin, you know that it ravages the, the personal life. It ravages homes. It ravages communities. It ravages nations and can even ravage a church fellowship if you're not careful. Jesus came to seek and save those who are ravaged by such a lifestyle of sin. Some of you looking back at me right now, in particular those of you listening by way of live stream, you may come from a great long line of unrighteous people. Your great-grandpappy was unrighteous. He passed that along to your grandpappy, who passed that along to your daddy, who passed it along to you, and doggone it, you're bound to determine that you're going to keep that old family tradition and pass it along to your youngins, even if all of you are going... 
Sin ravages. Here's an incredible truth. I love this. I love preaching this. Beloved, Jesus did not, either in Bible times when he walked uh, physically on this terrestrial ball, and neither does he leave persons like he finds them. You can't have a connection with Jesus and not be changed some way, somehow. He pursues persons even while they are sinners. And that's good news right there, but he doesn't leave them there. That's an overarching, underlying theme of what I'm trying to share with you this morning. Now go back with me to our text passage, John chapter 8. Again, look at verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now I tell you, I have been to the Mount of Olives. Literally, I've been to the Mount of Olives. It's a little mount on the other side of the uh, Kidron Valley, which looks more like a ditch if you're from these parts, but it's opposite the city of Jerusalem. Jesus spent a lot of time there. What did he do there, church? He went there to pray as one of his favorite prayer spots. Look at verse 2. At dawn, which infers that he prayed all night long, he appeared again, which means he had been there before, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Now watch. I sort of have a style in terms of what I bring to you and how I bring it to you each week. I've been challenged this week a little bit and I'm telling you a story this morning. I've just given you the introduction to it and now we're going to break it down bit by bit and see what's going on here and I trust you'll follow me through this story. What's happening? What did verses 1 and 2 tell us? Basically, this is one of the most frequently observed scenes in all the Gospels. How so? Jesus returning from his favorite prayer spot in order to enter the temple area. Watch. If Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, needed to spend hours and hours praying, then do you not believe or don't you think that it behooves those of us who claim to be followers of Christ should do likewise? Once there, back at the temple, he did what he did best. I love this. He sat down and taught the people. Isn't that interesting? He sat down and taught the people. I was always taught that you stand up to be seen, you speak up to be heard, and you shut up to be remembered. Say amen right there. <laughs> but he sat down and taught them. Listen, that was the Hebrew model. The Hebrews were a lot gooder at that than the Greeks. You are experiencing the Greek model this morning. Y'all sit down, I'll do all the talking, y'all just listen and write. Sounds a lot like school, doesn't it? There's a good reason for that, because that's the way we do our schools in the good old U.S. of A. But Jesus, he sat down, he said, y'all come around here, let me tell you a couple of stories, let me show you some things. The Hebrew model. Now listen, I still get goosebumps. If you could see the back of my neck, you would see little goosey bumps right now. I still get goosebumps just thinking about being there live and in person. 
Can you imagine running around one morning, oh, I got to go to the temple, and you got to shave your legs and all that stuff. You go running over to the temple, and when you get to the temple courts, here's a guy sitting there teaching, and it's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, doing the teaching. Would that, does that give you goosebumps? Wouldn't that be something? But they didn't fully realize the enormity of the experience that their creator is literally seated among them, that the word is bringing to them the word, the truth, the living water. They didn't fully comprehend that. Some of them did, but the majority of them did not. Now, on this specific occasion, we have a scene unfold that would be recast again and again and again. Go with me to the first part of verse number 3, John 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Let me tell you about these goomers. These were actually the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's significant. They were full-blown proponents of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament Jewish way of, watch this, at least appearing to advocate for and honor God's mandated way of living. The only trouble is they had allowed for their own earth born traditions, the traditions of man, and their insatiable thirst for power and prestige to encroach upon and overshadow any semblance of God's rule and God's reign in their hearts. Everybody say their hearts. You understand the difference between out there, what you're trying to make people believe, and in here, what actually is? You with me? I know you don't like for the preacher to talk about that, but that's my business. Number two on your study notes. Will you fill this in with me? For the most part, they, these folks that we read about here in John chapter 8, they were more concerned about being God's people in an ethnic sense, your notes say that a little bit differently, but they were more concerned about that than they were being people that actually lived to please God spiritually on the inside where it counts. Watch this. Very much like Americans, many of whom that you may know and love, that call themselves quote-unquote Christians, when they haven't surrendered their life to Christ. Very similar. They, these guys proudly boasted of being God's chosen, yet they routinely rejected God's rule in their everyday walking around life. And then they conveniently devised some rules and regulations, traditions that would reinforce the way they live. It's sad. Look at your neighbor and say, I know that's sad. It was. It was sad. To say that these teachers of the law and these Pharisees had learned to take matters into their own hands, in other words, they, they had their own agenda, 
To say that is a masterpiece of understatement. And for proof of that, I want you to look at this ugly, conniving ploy that's revealed in the middle of the latter part of verse 3, John 8 and 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They brought in a what? A woman caught in adultery. Now, this doesn't necessarily, it's important that you catch this, it doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't necessarily mean that the accusers literally walked in on the adulterating culprits. You got a mental image of that? I hope not. Let that go. But it would certainly appear that is a high probability, but it's not necessarily a stated fact. Now let me say, walk with me here. Follow me. Caught, when we say caught in adultery, it could mean one of about four different things, just real quick like. It could mean that this woman, she was married and stepping out on her husband with another married man. That's one scenario. Or the other man could have been unmarried. In other words, he could have been single. She was married, he was not. That's the second scenario. She may have been unmarried and was aiding and abetting some other fellow that was stepping out on his wife. A third scenario. And a fourth very likely, she very well could have been a prostitute engaging a married man. Are you with me on all that? If you, we give the test right now, could you pass? All right, there you go. Four different things. But think about this, folks. If she was caught in adultery, and verse 4 says the very act, then this could have been. It could have been, and no doubt was, an overly dramatic, soap opera-ish kind of fiasco. Can you imagine? She may have been scantily clad. Scantily, I say. No doubt she was disheveled. I doubt they said, hey, you want to put on some makeup before we drag you off to the temple? No. Certainly, she had to be embarrassed, wouldn't you think? Am I reading too much into that? And certainly, she had to be humiliated and watch this. Mostly, she had to be and had every reason to be fearing for her very life. This was serious business. Her accusers, or perhaps I should say conspirators, why do I say that? Stay tuned. Her accusers were screaming about their legal right, their scriptural right to call for this adulteress, which is what they were accusing, to call for her to be stoned, for her to be brutally put to death. And brutal it is. Albeit, they knew right well that they were not even remotely adhering to the dictates of the law. And more about that in just a moment. I want you to catch this.
Look at John 8 in the latter part of verse number 3. We read, they made her stand before the group. Who did they make stand before the group? Her. Now, right away, the observant will realize there's a missing piece to this puzzle. What is it, church? Fill in number three with me. Where's the fella? Where's the fella? You remember that little lady that said, where's the beef? Well, <laughs> where's the fella that she was alleged to be with? I've conducted some scientific research in the past week, and here's what I have discovered. I have discovered that it is impossible to commit adultery by oneself. Although, check this out. Jesus, the Christ, did help us to see that the act of adultery actually initiates from within the heart. It's also closely connected to the eyes as I've been to research. Listen to Matthew 5 and 27. Jesus is speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said. You've heard this. They had heard this. It was the law. Do not commit adultery. They knew that. Well, look at verse 28. But I tell you, you, here's what you've heard. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Church, where does it start? It starts in the heart. Oh, my goodness. They made her stand before the group. Look at verse 4. And the teachers and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Watch this, ladies and gentlemen. That was their convenient twist on the matter. What you talking about, Pastor Terry? Again, I ask you, where's the fella? Go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 22. Read that entire chapter. And I ask you, where's the fella? And I say to you this morning, chances are there wasn't a fella. Chances are there wasn't one. And number four on your study notes, fill this in with me. The law of Moses is the Word of God. Starting with Genesis and going through uh, Malachi, the Word of God is, or the law of Moses is the Word of God. Watch this. It was not given for the purpose of individuals using it as a weapon to bash other persons. See them fellows there bashing? Does that look like some churches you've been to? Would you all stand, Lord bless this service, and they start whopping one another over here with the Bible? Usually they wait until they get outside to do it. It's all the same mess. It was not given for the purpose of, of individuals using it as a weapon to bash other persons. Or it certainly was not given that we might reshape it, that we might reshape the Word to serve as a weapon 
in some self-serving scheme that emanates from some worldly, carnal, sin-infected heart. It was certainly not given to disassemble and to twist and misuse to draw attention to someone else's sin as part of a ploy to advance a plot that was envisioned to set a trap for Jesus Christ. Certainly it was not given for that Beloved, we're going to cut in right there. And let me wrap this up uh, this way by reemphasizing something to you. The Word of God, the Bible, was never given to us so that we might use it as a weapon to beat other people over the head with. That's not what it's for at all. It's to help us know and understand God's purpose and plan for our life. You see, God has a plan, not only for my life, but for yours as well. And that plan is... Uh, can be wrapped up in two words, Jesus Christ. And uh, that can be wrapped up in one word, love. You see, we have a sin problem, you and I, both of us. God purposed to send Jesus to die in our place to take care of our sin problem. That's really what the cross is all about. That's what this Easter season is all about. Jesus died, but He was resurrected. He died for our sins. He was resurrected so that we too might be resurrected and have new life. The question that remains is this. What are you using the Word for? Are you using it to beat other people over the head with, to try to gain one-upmanship on someone else? Or are you using the Word as it was intended to draw us to God, to help us to know and understand His plan and to serve to, uh, to empower us to love like Jesus did. What a great calling. My prayer for you is that if you haven't gotten this message, that you will. And I believe this. I believe that Holy Spirit of God is on the side of truth. And the truth is, it's love that will prevail. Do you feel loved? Are you serving Christ's purpose in your life by loving others and encouraging them to come in line with God's Word, His Bible, His truth, are you? If not, I trust that you can be encouraged to, uh, to really sense the, the power of God and being received of the power of God to enable you to help not only yourself, but to help others know and understand God's plan of love and redemption for all mankind. Father, I thank you for each one listening in right now, and I pray by your word that you have spoken to hearts, and I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are lost in their sins that they'll realize that there is a Jesus that not only went to the cross, not only died, not only shed his blood, but was resurrected so that we might have new life, life and that more abundantly, not only in the present, but in the world to come, eternal life, I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Beloved, before we get out of here, I do want to remind you that New Life has a regular schedule of activity. Sunday morning at 10 o'clock is our primary worship celebration. We also have midweek activities. Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, something for the children, the teens, the adults, just a, a full orb of activities taking place here. If you'd like more information about what we do or who we are, there's some contact info on the screen. Uh, just jot that down, give us a holler. We'll be glad to, uh, to talk to you and to respond to you 
accordingly. Well, I need to get out of here. My time is gone. I trust that you have had and will have a great Easter week. Lord willing, we'll see you next time. God bless. And remember, my friends, Jesus is coming back. Is he coming back for you?